0: Welcome to Storytellers of STEM. My name is Rachel Villani. This is episode 19 of a series all about Antarctica, and they will be out every Thursday for at least the next month, unless I record more episodes, which I am totally open to. So if you want to hear from someone or about a particular topic, just let me know. So today's storyteller is Dr. Michael Shrimp. He's currently doing a postdoc position at the University of Manitoba, and his research interests are about species distributions, bird conservation, and species interactions. But today, he's here to talk about his PhD research at Stony Brook University, where he was in the same lab as Alex Borowitz, which you hear us reference in this episode. So his PhD research focused on the distribution and community ecology of breeding birds in Antarctica. I know we all think about penguins in Antarctica, but there's also a variety of seabirds, including a species of cormorant, plus a few petrels, and at least one albatross species that I know of. So we talk all about birds, about field work, how they did their research utilizing tourist cruise ships, um, about what he's doing now, and upcoming things he's got going on. This was a lot of fun. I enjoyed talking to Michael, so enjoy. Cool. Yeah, so really, uh, I would just love to hear about your work and experiences. I know that y'all worked as a team, but I don't know if what exactly each
1: person's role was, or any of that. Um, yeah, yeah. So I don't, I don't know how much Alex, you, know, you talked with Alex about our sort of collaborative work specifically. Um, but uh, basically, the, I mean, the, many people in Heather's lab, and we're, we were all PhD students, uh, are or were uh, PhD students in in Heather Lynch's lab, um, and. Uh, the majority of the work uh, that we've done in Antarctica so far has been in partnership with the um, uh, the sort of a, an organization um, called Oceanites, which is a nonprofit organization. Um, and Oceanites sort of has been running this long-term project called the Antarctic Site Inventory, uh, and the the basic goal of the Antarctic site inventory is to document mostly birds but other bio, you know, wildlife and biodiversity uh, among various uh, discrete sites where you tend to have these pockets of um, these pockets of wildlife. Uh, and most of those pockets are all focused around seabird colonies, um, penguin colonies primarily, but there's a, there's a few other birds there as well. Uh, and the The idea came from the the guy who started Ocean IDs, Ron Naveen, uh, who had been doing some um, Antarctic tour tour guiding, basically, down there. Uh, And he got interested in whether or not the tourism industry specifically uh, and just the overall human presence on the Antarctic Peninsula was affecting the breeding birds. The penguins, mostly. So he started counting penguins, basically, uh, and teamed up with a couple of scientists um, uh, that started the project with him back uh, 25, 20, it might be more than 25 now, maybe 27 years ago, something like that. Um, and they've been documenting uh, sort of the numbers at these various penguin colonies uh, over the years. And so Heather got involved uh, as a as a research scientist uh, with, with that program uh, when she was a postdoc. Yeah, so uh, so she she got involved when she was a postdoc, uh, and mostly as a as a data analyst. Um, her her expertise is in sort of statistics and especially Bayesian statistics. And the, because of the nature of how we did the work, uh, the data were kind of complicated to analyze. And so she. Um, her skills went very well to that. Um, so that's how she got her start in Antarctic science. And then it's sort of grown from there. Um, and it continues to be the case that the majority of the work that we do down there is in partnership with cruise companies. Uh, so we travel with the tour industry. Um, uh, on, we've traveled with a number of different companies now on a number of different vessels. And, uh, and the idea is we travel with them. Uh, passengers are there to see things. Um, and then we get to visit a lot of different sites um, as the ships tra- you know, travel to and from. Uh, the benefit of that is that we get to a lot of places. So unlike a lot of other Antarctic research that is very focused at bases, where you have the logistics to support research, um, we, we get to travel all over uh, and we s- get to visit lots of different sites, which means that we get a very geographically broad uh, view of the, um, of the system. Um, The downside to that is that we don't have a huge amount of control over where we go or when we go there, um, because the cruise cruise companies have a schedule. And more than that, they're trying to give a good uh, sort of trip to their passengers. And so um, they're going to go to places where they can uh, give their passengers a good time. And uh, that is sometimes that doesn't match up well with priorities for where we actually like to get samples or do counts um, but it's a partnership that works quite well and uh, and that's sort of our, our niche in the uh, the Antarctic uh, research realm
0: yeah it sounds like an interesting relationship between well it sounds mutually beneficial in some ways because I would assume lots of cruise ship passengers don't interact with you know a lot of Antarctic researchers and so that that's probably interesting, and then like you said, you get to go to a lot of different places. But you know, also the weather is probably part of that that influences that.
1: Yeah, things like that influence any scientific expedition <laughs> anyway. But uh, um, yeah, so it, weather is part of it, but also just you know trying to keep a schedule and stuff. And from the point of view of where the ship is going, we are not the highest priority. Um, that being said, the cruise companies do a really good job. So I should say a little bit more. So the when you think of a cruise ship. Um, the cruises that are being run to the Antarctic are generally not the stereotypical large sort of carnival cruise lines type ship. Um, there are There's an organization of companies um, and almost everyone that goes down there is a member of this organization, um, IOTO, the International Association for Antarctica Tour Operators. Um, and uh, it is a an industry-run organization, um, and so there's no sort of oversight of, of this organization. Um, but they have a vested interest in uh, in good stewardship of the uh, environment, primarily because the people who choose to go to Antarctica are by and large people who want to see nature. You know, they're not going there to visit the gift shops or to go jet skiing or whatever, you know, that they're going there to see wildlife and to experience a, a natural setting. Uh, and so they're, they have a, an interest in making sure that Antarctica remains pristine and uh, a place where people want to go. Um, and so there's a lot of self-regulation that goes on uh, and there are limits to, for example, the number of people that can go ashore at any one time, at any one place the number of ships that can visit certain places at certain times, that's another thing, is when people go to Antarctica, they don't wanna feel crowded. Um, so the ships put a lot of effort into keeping out of sight of each other, even if there are actually a good number, like you can go on the bridge and look at the radar or look, look at the AIS and see the fact that there's a ship here and then there's a ship on the other side of that island and there's a ship around the corner in this other cove. Um, so it's actually, during the season, there's quite a lot of vessel activity in some of those parts of the peninsula. Um, but the the ships are trying to stay out of each other's way so that people feel like they're in Antarctica sort of alone um, which is an interesting dynamic uh, and and so there are all sorts of limits to uh, how many people you can have and that, necessitates a, a sort of business model from the cruise industry perspective, where you have generally not so many passengers. Um, the, the largest ships that are doing landings, there's some, some ships that just don't do landings, they just go down there, sail around, and then go back north. And those can be a little bit bigger sometimes, actually approaching some of those larger cruise ship sizes. But all the ships that are doing landings generally don't have more than, say, three to 500 people on board, passengers um a lot of them have even less have you know maybe a couple hundred if that um some of the ships that we've traveled on have had max 100 passengers um and uh you have a very high very high level of staff expedition staff to passenger ratio and those expedition staff are often very well-trained and very knowledgeable about the environment um, and care quite a bit about the environment. A lot of them are uh, professional guides that lead hikes or kayakers or uh, people who have worked in uh, in sort of the, the marine industry, um, uh, guiding people and driving small boats and things. Uh, and so there's quite a lot of people who actually care about um, doing it the right way basically from an environmental point of view. Um, yeah, so it's, it's, uh, it's an interesting, it's an interesting group of people leading these trips. It's an interesting group of people who go on these trips. Um, and then of course, it's very expensive to go on one of these trips. And so that adds to the, the filter on what kind of people are there, which is fascinating sometimes.
0: Yeah, it's a really good point because uh, I know that a lot of the ships are a lot smaller than, you know, the Carnival cruise ship that docks here in New Orleans, right. but uh, it's a good point to point that out for sure because it's, uh, they're a lot smaller than that because those hold like thousands of people. Yeah.
1: Smaller, although sometimes because the clientele that they're catering to often are uh, people with a lot of money, they can be small but quite fancy <laughs> um, and, you uh, yeah, it's a, it's a very interesting part of the cruise industry, um, and there's a similar aspect of the cruise industry, I think, that uh, occurs in the northern hemisphere up in the Arctic, uh, and some of the companies that we've worked with have, do also do Arctic cruises, but I think the Antarctic is, is different in some ways, just because it's so remote from large uh, developed population centers, so it's an interesting... It, an interesting thing. Um, but to bring back to your, your earlier point about it being mutually beneficial, that's definitely the case because people are going there to see wildlife and often they want to learn about that wildlife at the same time. And so having wildlife biologists on board uh, is a great benefit to the cruise company because it gives the, their passengers a, a really unique experience. Um, it helps, helps add to that, that difference in, in an Antarctic cruise versus a cruise in lots of other places. Uh, and um and obviously it's beneficial to us because it it gives us access to do science in ways that we never would have been able to if we were you know paying for a research vessel to do it on our own.
0: Yeah totally I think that's a really cool uh relationship it's it's intriguing to me because I I mean like a lot of scientists tend to do science myself included outside of like the public eye I guess you know Mm -hmm. like nobody's there's not like a any people like, oh, she's going to do science now, <laughs> you know. Yep. Um, so I, think that, I, th- I find that really interesting. Um, I also, when you're talking about like the ships trying to stay out of sight of each other, so there's like a ship tracker app or whatever because we use it for work sometimes just like to see what kind of traffic there is in the river, when I say the river, in the Mississippi River. But if you look like around Antarctica or like between there and South America, you know, in the prime tour season, I was surprised at how many ships there were, and I was like, "Oh, there's so much more, so like, so many more people and vessels around there than like there are around where I'm at, and I'm, you know, in the U.S." It's just, yep. just like astounding to me.
1: Yeah, it can be really busy, and in fact, um, Heather and a um, uh, master student in the lab. Um, uh, Nicole Bender. Um, so I believe uh, Nicole was the first author. So I think it's Bender at all, maybe, or Bender and Lynch. I don't remember the year, but it was a paper in either polar biology or Antarctic science, maybe about the concentration of vessel traffic and, and where they are. The ships are not only, there's a lot of them, but they're also very concentrated. So like okay if if you like average it across the entire antarctic there still aren't that many ships but it's in the tens of thousands of people that go to antarctic every year to, to to travel um so you know compared to like the millions of tourists that might visit some of these other places it's not as much but they're very concentrated in in certain places and when you think about that as a an area that's not that you're trying to keep pristine from from human impact um it's an interesting an interesting challenge
0: yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it was just like, they're around the peninsula and like, I don't remember where else, but it's just like, oh, there's like ships everywhere. <laughs> it was just mind blowing to me. Cause like, I, I mean, I work in a very different environment but like, we might not see anybody all day and like where, you know, on the mainland essentially like out mm-hmm. in the wetlands where, or like we might see like one ship boat or something. you know, so it was just interesting to me to see so many people in one, or so many ships in one area. Yeah. Thank you for the background on like the work because we didn't, Alex and I didn't really talk about that. So I, I didn't think to ask. So that was cool that you explained that. Um, and I, yeah. I didn't know the, about the Antarctic site inventory.
1: Yeah, I can send you, um, when we're done, I can send you a few websites. Um, so yeah. you can look up more stuff about ocean IDs and things like that. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's pretty cool. The other thing that um, sort of you, you, you mentioned briefly, sort of the idea of doing things in the public eye. Um, so that is definitely the case. Often when we are doing our work, if we're doing a count of a colony, sometimes we get, a, you know, the staff will Zodiac drive us to, you know, another colony that's nearby or something. And so we're sort of away from the passengers. Um, but often we are doing work on the colony that the passengers are visiting. Uh, and so there are times, well, two things can happen. So first, we might, um, we might be doing work with you know, a bunch of people with their big cameras, taking pictures of both the penguins and us doing work on the penguins, which is kind of interesting. Um, it's like doing science in a, in a glass bubble, sort of like the opening to Jurassic Park when all the people are pipetting their DNA when and there's like a ride of people going past. Um, it can kind of feel like that sometimes um the other thing is that there are times when uh scientists have to do things you know for example and rachel actually is the person to talk to you about this um most of what i was doing uh, and most of what the asi the antarctic site inventory does is just count things we don't have a hands-on approach for the most part um and so we're normally on at the side of a colony um uh or or sometimes in the colony doing counts of, of nests um we take special care to talk to the passengers in advance because we have special permits um, from the U.S. Antarctic program that allow us to get closer to the wildlife uh, than passengers are allowed to get. That's another thing that the, that IOTO has been really good about. And those actually are, there are some rules that go above um, IOTO that that come from the, the treaty organizations that govern the Antarctic. Um, but there's guidelines and rules about, for the passengers anyway, uh, about how close they can get and and it's mostly things to keep the passengers safe and to keep the wildlife safe. And so the passengers get lectured quite a bit before they go ashore on, on what they can and can't do. And because we have some exceptions to those rules, we, we talk to them about that. That being said, there are times when, for example, Rachel uh, was doing some work that required blood sampling, um, some penguins. And that can be a little traumatic looking um, from the point of view of someone who, who's come to look at the pristineness of the Antarctic wildlife. Um, and so she took special care to find ways to do that out of the public eye as much as possible. Um, uh, so that the passengers were not necessarily traumatized um, by the, the scientific sampling that obviously she had permits for that and was taking care to limit the, the impact on the birds as much as possible. But often that that doesn't it might not seem that way from from a uh, a person who doesn't necessarily know know what to look for or know what proper handling of wildlife looks like.
0: I really think that's an interesting point because we, I think about this sometimes I'm like, what does my work look like to like someone if they were just observing me? Like, you know, what does it look like externally to the research? I guess what I'm trying to say is like, there are things that like I do for my work. I'm like, this looks insane. If you don't know that this is the right way to do this. You know,
1: Um, know, sometimes doing something Quickly is this is the best way to prevent an animal from getting overly stressed or, or injured, and and that you know once you're skilled at doing that quickly, it's it can be quite safe for the animal, um, but it might look quite traumatic for someone who is not used to that. Basically, um, that's you know sort of one one example catching a penguin, for example. Um, yeah, um, and then sort of on the flip side of that, there's other things that we do where we. We could sort of do things off on our own sometimes, but I actually like taking the effort, if I, if I can, if it's amenable to the the task, the task that I need to, to uh, do, um, it's quite fun to involve passengers as much as possible. So there have been times, for example, when the passengers have been um, Zodiac cruising. When we're not doing a landing, we're just driving around in, in inflatable boats. Um, and often when we're doing that, uh, if the staff can spare one, they'll have one boat dedicated to uh, taking the scientists around. Um, and, you know, if we have certain pictures from certain vantage points we're trying to get, we one might do that, because it's not necessarily the places where the rest of the passengers want to go. But there have been several times when we have advertised to the passengers, hey, if you want, you can come on the science boat, and we'll do do some science. Uh, and sometimes people get really into that. Um, and they they have a huge amount of fun with it, they get to talk to us about what we're doing, we can talk to them a little bit what it is we're looking for, give them a, a lens into the, the scientific process a little bit. And then even more so, um, I have become much more interested in community science, is often called citizen science. There are several citizen science or community science programs that are operating uh, in the Antarctic, and most of them are right now are getting organized by an organization called the Polar Citizen Science Collective, um, which remind me, I'll send you that link as well and there's a m- number of different projects. One that I have sort of designed is um, I-, I have been doing quite a lot of work with eBird. Well, I knew
0: you were a birder because I see the pile guide behind you. Yes. <laughs> Which, yeah, I noticed the sibling and I was like, oh, that's a pile guide next to it. Yes. So I, I was like, oh, context clues. He does bird stuff.
1: <laughs> yes. uh, yeah. So, uh, so um, but yeah, so eBird has become a really powerful tool as as it's gotten so popular. Uh, and I have been wanting to expand eBird. Right now, eBird is, is popular enough in um, places like North America. Increasingly, I think in Europe, um, it, it really got its start in North America and is, is becoming more and more popular in other parts of the world. And there are a few places where it's kind of caught on. In North America, it is popular enough and there's enough of a base of records. There's all sorts of issues with dealing with eBird because it's a semi-structured program uh, and you have to account for differences among observers and things like that. Um, And so the the data can be a little bit messy. But uh, when you have a lot of those data, you can actually do some very powerful things with them. And that's actually, going back to how I started, uh, that's why Heather's expertise was so important in, in the ASI Because the sampling scheme is not very regular, we can't go to the same sites uh, sort of every week or something like that. Uh, And so the data that we get are very patchy uh, and are messy. And so you need some advanced techniques to deal with those messy data. The same is true for eBird data. But when you, when you find out how to deal with those, uh, then you can really do some useful things with them. And now eBird has gotten to the point where it can be used for all sorts of interesting things. They are doing co- really, really cool stuff with migratory birds, looking at patterns of migration and timing of migration. And there's a huge list of, of different projects that have been done. Um, and I'm in fact, I'm working on one right now in relation to the uh, effects that the COVID shutdowns have had on um, North American birds. And that's submitted. We can't really talk about that yet. Yeah. So my goal was to uh, see if we can use eBird in some of these similar ways at sea uh, for seabirds. And uh, the open ocean is one place where there's very, very little eBird coverage, um, much, much less than anywhere else on the planet, because it's just so infrequently traveled. However, um, there are uh, a lot of people that collect data while they're at sea on these ships looking at seabirds. And, um, and so it's been my hope that we can actually start to do some similar things in terms of where these birds are, when are they moving through different areas? And then eventually across time, are numbers of birds changing over time? Uh, That's something that they're starting to be able to do in North America with eBird data. And I'm interested to see if I can do the same thing with seabirds. And we're not quite to that point yet, but I've been trying to organize um, volunteers to submit uh, data via eBird or through me to eBird um as part of the citizen science collective uh, and, and that's been going quite well we've had quite a lot of involvement in that and i hope to continue that now that i've finished my phd and moving into sort of future careers
0: that sounds like a really cool project
1: i'm excited about it I, and we've got some preliminary data um, i haven't had a chance really to work with those data much so i don't unfortunately have anything any results to talk about but sure, it's yeah. Uh, yeah it's um something that i will uh, definitely look forward to in the future
0: Yeah. That's so cool. I love those types of things where someone like, that's why eBird is so cool is because you can go do your birding and everybody that birds pretty much keeps track of what they see, unless they're a bad list taker like me. (laughs) And um, and Then you submit this data and that data is all there. And so, yeah, it'd be really cool to be able to use that for other things as well.
1: Yeah. As long as you take the care to, uh, to work with the data in responsible ways Mm -hmm. and to, um, and to account for the messiness, if you will, mm-hmm. of the of how the data were collected, um, which you can do, there are ways to do that. Um, and, and then you can really tell some very interesting things from these data that you never would have been able to do with just uh, one or two scientists doing a project on their own uh, trying to go out because you can only be so many places at once. Um, and so, uh, yeah. So that's that's really the power in collect in having volunteers collect those data, mm-hmm. and the people that go on the, the Antarctic cruises are they're looking for ways to contribute. Um, they care quite a bit about the environment, uh, and are learning about it while they're there, and they get very excited about um, about being part of the process. And so I I think that that's an an even better way to sort of get them engaged is to not only uh, you know, have, you know, allow them to learn something from you, but also be part of the process. That's, I think, the best way to really, uh, to really get, get excited about something.
0: Yeah, I mean, I would be excited, even though my background's in wildlife and birds, but I would still, like, be like, oh, look, I'm gonna keep track of everything, because this could help somebody and, like, help all these birds. Yeah, Uh, yeah, Yeah, that's so cool.
1: It's also great to have people to take pictures of you while you're doing... (laughs) field research, you don't have to worry about, like I have so many pictures of me in the field because there were people on vacation taking pictures of me in the field and then sharing those pictures with me.
0: That, I actually wrote that down a second ago because, um, or when we were talking about that, because I wonder how often I end up in tourist photos because one place we go, we're, we're in an airboat and there are swap tours full of tourists. And like, you know, we go by and everybody takes pictures of us. I'm like, I wonder how many like tourist photos I'm in will never know but you like have a, you know somewhat of a relationship with these people so that's pretty cool
1: yeah we we usually you know normally there's a at least in, the, in one of the companies that i've worked with quite a lot um there was always a computer set up somewhere on the ship where people could drop f- photos to share with other passengers uh cool. and so we set up a, a little folder um and uh, anyone who took pictures of us could put photos in there that you know they wanted to share those photos
0: that's cool yeah we my coworker and I we have a bad habit of not taking pictures of each other doing stuff until something real dumb happens like we fell in a hole right. so like all of our pictures like the boat is stuck we fell in a hole or I fell off of something and now I'm covered in mud <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah that's I mean normally when you're out there working it you don't think like that's not your highest priority obviously mm-hmm. your priority is getting the data and doing right. the work and then um you only think about that if, if, you know, something funny happens or something ridiculous happens. Um, and uh, and yeah, and so you have to make a conscious effort to say, I need a I need a picture of what I'm doing so that when I'm telling people about it, I can show them in a picture. Um, I don't just have to explain it in words. And um, yeah, it, it, it helps also that many of these people have very fancy cameras uh-huh. and so, and the Antarctic is by its nature a very epic place. It's hard to take a uninteresting-looking photo in the Antarctic. Uh, so I have a lot of really epic photos of me in, in the field now.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. I was looking at field photos the other day and I was like, the only, I'm going to put good in quotes, the only good one of me from this summer is the when I fell up to my waist in a hole. And I'm looking back at my coworker like, can you believe this mess I'm in? <laughs> yeah. She's like, stay there, but take a picture. I'm like, okay. <laughs> Oh, that's funny. Well, so let's talk about um, a little bit more about the work that you did while you were there. So uh, I have deduced that you are a bird person. And um, I know that Alex mostly worked on marine predators, it sounds like, and maybe a little bit on penguins. And so what did you, what was your project?
1: So um, much of the lab is focused on penguins. uh, And some of my work was, was on penguins mostly because that's, those are the birds that we had quite a lot of data for. But I'm, I, I was actually most interested in the community of birds as a whole. Uh, and my work, my, I mean, my, my basic goal really is to understand why there are different species in different places. Um, if you travel around the Antarctic, what you'll see, the Antarctic Peninsula, I should say, Uh, One thing that you notice quite early is that all the wildlife, all the bird life anyway, um, is very concentrated uh, in these certain places. Um, Mostly that's around penguin colonies, but it's not necessarily always penguins, Um, but you'll have one little spot. Um, which is usually a a rocky outcrop or something, or a small island, um, which uh, has some snow-free rocky areas during the summer, because um, with the exception of the emperor penguin, all of the birds in the Antarctic need uh, bare ground on which to lay eggs so the eggs don't freeze. And, um, And you'll travel around and there will be a colony of birds in one place, and It's not just one species uh, at at that place. Often you'll have a couple of different species there at once. And then you can travel, you know, a mile or two down the coast and there will be nothing, just bare rock. You might have a lot of little islands. The islands all might look very similar to each other. There's no real indication why this island is different from this island, but island A has birds on it and island B doesn't. And then you go to a mile down the coast and you come up to another colony, another little island that has birds on it, and it's a different suite of species. Um, some, there's, some, all, there's some overlap. Some, some of the species might be the same, but uh, you know, on this island, you might have both Gentoo penguins and chinstrap chin, chin penguins nesting. The next island might be only chinstraps. An the island after that might be only gentus. And each one of those might also have other birds. So there's a bunch of birds that are not penguins that also breed in the Antarctic. Um, and what's really fun is that there's birds that fill all sorts of different ecological roles. So there's scavengers like, um, the snowy sheathbill, which is the only non seabird in the Antarctic. Uh, it's kind of in a family all by itself. Um, there's two species of sheathbills, both nest on uh, South Polar Islands, basically. One is slightly further north, uh, and the other is the snowy sheathbill that nests in the Antarctic and some of the other sub Antarctic islands. Um, and so sometimes there will be sheathbills there, sometimes not. Um, often there will be skuas there. There's two species of skua in the Antarctic, and those are the predatory birds that become evil in Morgan Freeman documentaries um, that, you know, eat penguin eggs or chicks, Um, but they're they're making a life for themselves. Uh, And so there's that predator, that that sort of top predator role that the skuas uh, fill, and then there's a bunch of other seabirds, including the penguins. There's three species of what are called brush-tailed penguins, the gentoo, the chinstrap, and the adeli. Uh, They all three nest in the peninsula. Uh, And then there's a number of other species. There's a species of cormorant called the Antarctic shag. Um, It's the furthest southern nesting cormorant in the world. Uh, um, There are a bunch of other seabirds like petrels and storm petrels uh, that will nest there. There's a species called the giant petrel, um, which is also a predator scavenger um, uh, at some times. So anyway, there's, there's this whole host of different the different bird species, a total of about 15 or so, um, depending on, on where you draw the boundaries. And uh, I was interested in why we see these assemblages. And my biggest question was, is the, is, is the species that we see there a function of the other species that are there? If there are gentoo penguins there, for example, does that make it more or less likely that there will be shags there or sheath bills? Is that because they're competing potentially for space or for food resources, or is that because one facilitates the other? Um, if you're a scavenger, obviously, it helps to have another bird there, but doesn't matter which species. Um, those are some of the, the big fundamental questions that I had uh, that I was trying to address with my PhD. Um, and I, I did that with a couple of different ways. Um, the, the biggest thing I needed to do, frankly, is to just uh, document what was where, um, that was the, b- the biggest challenge. Um, and it's, it's easy to do that for a small area. Uh, but, you know, for example, around a base, and there have been several particular places, Palmer Station, for example, where um, uh, there's been a long study, a series of ecological studies there. and We know quite a bit about the birds around that area. But the rest of the Antarctic Peninsula is very underexplored um, from from that perspective. Um, But because we're able to go to all these different places and because many of these birds are relatively easy to detect, at least the penguins are easy to detect when you're traveling past a place, um, we have a pretty good idea of where all these different species have their breeding colonies and where importantly the breeding colonies are not located. So if you imagine going into a forest, you might be able to survey a very particular part of that forest you might be able to detect nests of birds at some places, but you're never really confident that you saw all the nests of those birds. And so any sort of estimate of the population size or an estimate of where they are or are not always has this uncertainty associated with it because you're never sure if you just missed something being there. Um, the, The first part of my PhD was really to design models that would allow us to say, how certain are we that we're not missing uh, different species. And some of them were not very certain because they nest in little crevices or burrows and it's easy to miss them. But for some of them, like the penguins, we're actually quite certain. And if we don't see it there, it's a good indication that they're not there. Uh, and by using satellite images, we can actually be pretty confident that we're not missing large sort of aggregations of many of these, um, despite the fact that actually we've, we've used those satellite images to get to find some of those places in, in recent years. But for most of the Antarctic Peninsula, we're now really good at knowing where there are and are not some of these colonies. And so the second part of my PhD was really to um, to use that information to try and say, do we see a, uh, these sorts of relationships among the species? And it turns out that um, we actually don't see very much relationship. Um, and that it seems to be that for most of these species, at least for the penguins, certainly, um, They tend to be located uh, in a given area, and there might be sort of a range limit to where that area is. But within that area, there are not strong associations for where we see colonies. Um, And they might just as likely be at a colony with another species as as not with another species. Um, But once you start adding in the population data uh, and looking at where is the concentration of population, then we start to see really strong separation, even more so than we thought before, um, and, uh, and so there were some really interesting things that I was able to tell that hopefully will be of use to uh, Antarctic conservation um, in, in trying to track how these populations are changing, um, especially with things like climate change and um, competition for food resources via fishing for krill and, and all sorts of other things that are potential threats to the species.
0: I'm sure you're probably working on publishing this, but can you give an example of one of the relationships so you don't need to like divulge your whole results? I'm just curious.
1: Yeah, so, but basically, if you look at the three pygacelid penguins, the Adeli, the Chinstrap, and the Gentoo, the Gentoo penguin has a very extreme Southern range edge. And that's actually something Rachel is working on is is looking at how that might be changing and and reasons for that. Uh, But if you look North of that range edge, um, the Gentoo penguin has its, uh, the concentration of its population um, kind of in the, the central part of the Antarctic Peninsula. The Chinstrap penguin is really focused at the, uh, along the South Shetland Islands and some of the other sort of uh, island groups that are along the edge of the peninsula. And the Adeli penguin has a, has a really strong um, center of the population right at the northern tip of the Antarctic Peninsula, which is um, a little bit weird. We used to think of them as being the furthest south. Uh, and and they would be more associated sort of with sea ice, and it turns out that um, there are some that are quite far south, further south than the Gentoo. The line where the Gentoo sort of drop off, but the concentration of the population there is actually fairly small, and most of them are up uh, around in the Weddell Sea area. Um, and if you look at if you overlay the maps of those three species, it's very clear that although you have areas where they do overlap, the really concentrated part of that population is non-overlapping, and so what I suggested in my PhD is that um, what we might have is a situation where we've got neutral or random colonization potential, and each of these species might be able to colonize any of these potential rocky areas in their range, Um, but that once the colonies are established, the fidelity that they have to those colonies is so strong that any sort of difference in Um, in where conditions are slightly better or worse for any one of those species uh, means that one area has a large growth in that population and other areas have relatively minimal growth. And it just kind of ekes along in existence at this low level. Um, There's a lot we don't know yet about uh, potential competition and other things. um, And hopefully in future years, we'll be able to, to piece some of that together.
0: I feel like every research project in Antarctica ends with, and there's a lot we don't know yet, because there's a lot we don't know yet. Because it's yes. such like, there's so many questions and it's like, basically it's super unexplored compared to a lot of places, you know? Yeah,
1: and it's it's really interesting. The Antarctic is a fascinating place from a science history perspective. The first time that humans went, the, I mean, the, it, it, it had gotten sort of sighted and stuff for the first time. In like the 17 and 1800s, that's where the the first explorers started to pick out the fact that there was a continent there. It wasn't really until the 20th century that people were actively going there on a regular basis, with the exception of the Antarctic Peninsula and some of those island groups along there where um, sealers had been there, um, but even they hadn't really been there in large numbers until the early 19th century. So it's been about 200 years or so that people have had, have actually been going to this place. Contrast that with most of the rest of the world. Um, you know, North America has been living with people and people as part of the landscape since the end of the last ice age. Um, and and the, the indigenous people of North America had a very, a very important part in the landscape ecology of North America. Um, And then similarly in Africa, going back millions of years, humans have been a part of the, um, you know, or or some species of humans has been a part of the um, the landscape there. Um, Europe and Asia, people have been heavily affecting the landscape um, in some places more than others, but, but definitely been a part of the environment for thousands of years. And in the Antarctic, it wasn't until very, very recently, Um, and although they did have a major effect on some species like fur seals that got hunted to near extinction, um, and whales that many of which have had, have only recently started to recover from the industrial whaling of the 20th century, a lot of the Antarctic, it has really been very, very under visited, first of all, and then under explored we have made a lot of strides uh, and especially for things like penguins. I mean I I can't really say much about uh, penguins are pretty well studied um, for the most part. It's surprising that we still don't know some of the things we don't know about them but we know a lot about penguins in general especially compared to some of the other aspects of the environment the things that the penguins eat for example we know a good amount about krill mostly because it's a harvested species and it's such a foundational part of the food web there but there are all sorts of other things species of fish that live in the antarctic that the gentoo penguins especially eat that have been described we know that they are a species do we know anything about their ecology no um, not really uh, and so there's a lot about the environment that it's just difficult to learn because we've only really been going there for the last couple hundred years
0: yeah and I feel like every research project has like you know you answer a question now I have 17 more questions (laughs) but you know the and often the other thing that's compounding to it as well is often the you know research seasons only a couple of months and you know I mean a lot of research is done on a seasonal level but that's a whole extreme extreme difference you know
1: yeah, and there's, there are major differences in the seasons. A lot of the places we visit, we would not be able to access via ship in the winter. It's just, you know, there's sea ice uh, that pre- would prevent a ship from getting in there. Um, and, and there are some places even during the Antarctic summer that we only get to visit on occasion because although the ships might want to go there to take people there, um, it's just an area that's usually socked in with sea ice, and it's, it's quite rare that you're able to actually get there. Um,
0: yeah. I have a question that I realize I don't know the answer to. Um, do these three species of penguins that, like we talked about, um, where do they go the rest of the year? <laughs>
1: it's, a good, it's a great question. Um, it's one of those questions that we've been actively trying to answer. So, uh, in general, most seabirds will leave their colonies and spend the non-breeding season at sea. Um, in the case of the chinstrap penguin, let's uh, probably exactly what they do. They, they leave their colonies, they spend a winter at sea, and then they come back in the, the spring. For the Adélie penguin, it is a, a species that's very closely tied to the sea ice. And what they'll often do is hang out in the sort of marginal sea ice zone during the winter. Um, so they kind of track as the sea ice expands, the, the, the the surface of Antarctica essentially doubles in size every winter um, because that much sea ice grows and then melts again in the in the spring. And so Delhi penguins are basically tracking right along the edge of where that sea ice uh, is is thick um, or is concentrated. Uh, and they'll spend a lot of the time hauled out on that sea ice sort of during the winter, resting or, or whatever. Gentoo uh, penguins, we used to think also just sort of went to sea. There is some evidence Recent evidence that they actually might stick pretty close to shore during the Antarctic winter, which for the Antarctic Peninsula is kind of surprising because there isn't a whole lot of open water, and they need to keep feeding. Uh, uh, and so um, it's a little bit unclear exactly what's going on with gentoos in the winter, and that's actively being looked into with things like um, cameras that that they set up that will overwinter that keep track of what they're doing. There's some evidence that gentoos will. Um, will just sort of hang around the area where their colony is. In fact, sometimes either you come back to the colony and just, just roost there, um, stand around there during the winter. Um, it, there's a lot we don't know yet about why that is and, and how exactly that works and what impact it might have on their ecology.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. When I asked that question, what I was thinking of was because we were talking about like, you know, seasonality of research. My master's research, I was studying migrating shorebirds but during spring migration. So like I'm limited by their migration schedule. Right. And then that got me thinking like, but what do penguins do? Cause I realized until now, I never really wondered about penguin migration. Like I kind of assumed that like the more, I mean, I know that their penguins are still seabirds, but we, I think we often, myself included, think of them more as land birds versus seabirds. Yeah. Um, but I was like, oh, I'm sure like the petrels and things like that, you know, go wherever. But I was like, I don't, know about penguins. That's where, I was, that's where I was coming from with that.
1: Yeah, and it's a lot of times when people think about migratory birds that you think about those four seasons. You think about the breeding season, the non-breeding season, and then the spring and fall migrations when they're in transit. Um, seabirds are a little bit different. There there are some seabirds that have a similar type thing. You know, An arctic tern, for example, has a breeding season, it has a migration season, and then it overwinters uh, in the, the southern hemisphere, um, there are a lot of seabirds that have more of a sort of breeding season and then dispersal. Um, and they'll, they'll they'll just spend spend the winter traveling, moving around. Um, so often it's in the same area, just sort of further out at sea, and then they'll come back to their colonies. Um, and there's a mix in the Antarctic. There are certainly some, in fact, there's some of those Antarctic seabirds that we have breeding in uh, in the Antarctic Peninsula that will overwinter in the North Atlantic. You can go on a whale watching trip and see them off of the coast of the U.S., the east coast of the U.S. during, the, uh, during our summer. Um, things like the Wilson storm petrel, for example, are fairly common along the coast of the U.S. Yeah, so there, there's and then there are some that just sort of move out and spend their winter at sea. Um, but several of them, like the genju penguin, also the Antarctic shag, we think, is, stays relatively local. But it's not really clear exactly how they spend that time, where they go, um, whether or not they're all concentrated together or dispersed from from the other the other individuals. Um, there's a lot of open questions about what goes on with some of those Antarctic seabirds during during the non-breeding season.
0: And all of this is why I think birds are so cool because <laughs> they all do so many different things. And like you were talking about earlier, they fill these different like roles, like some are scavengers, some are predators. Uh, mm-hmm. It's just people, birds can do all kinds of things.
1: People tend to forget that birds are quite a diverse group. I mean that they're a class. Um, so we can we can talk about the class aves, the, the class of birds, right alongside with the class of mammals. And if you try and lump mammals into a group, that you know, you're you're comparing shrews to elephants to people. That there's a huge diversity there in, in how they interact with. With their environment, um, uh, same thing with birds. There's a really great diversity.
0: Yeah, there really is. You said something about seabirds that I maybe subconsciously knew, I guess. So I have a friend who's a seabird biologist. Um, she tends to work in Alaska and Hawaii, depending on the time of year. And um, she's from Alaska. Um, but you know, I I know that things like albatross live at sea and come. It's just like a you know, big charismatic species example. And then nest on an island somewhere, um, and then go back to sea when they're done, and then come back next year. And so I think I just subconsciously assumed all seabirds do that. Like we were like, "Oh yeah, the skuas go wherever." And in my head, I was thinking, "Yeah, I guess they just go to sea, actually." (laughs) And I just, I am just now finally like connecting the dots, I guess.
1: (laughs) Yeah, some many do. I would say most seabirds do something like that. Where they spend their time at sea during the non-breeding season is that varies. Um, some don't. I mean, there are some there are some birds that are much more coastal, uh, terns, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, they can spend a good part of their time at sea, but but they also might come ashore. Um, especially some of the North American terns, like a common tern, for example. Although I, now that I say that, I don't actually know where common terns over winter and whether or not they're, they're coastal or or open water, but um, but there are plenty of plenty of examples of of seabirds that that are uh, that vary in in how exactly they spend that non-breeding season, but it almost always involves some some open ocean sort of movement. Um, and in the Antarctic, it's similar. Um, there are some birds in the Antarctic, or at least the subantarctic. You know, albatross. There, there's a few species of albatross in the North Pacific um in the southern ocean albatross that's where albatross really sort of are, are most at home i would say or mo- many of them there's a huge diversity of albatross in the southern ocean and uh we do get to visit south georgia uh, island um uh from time to time when we're on these ships um some of the work that our lab has done has been in south georgia in the past and uh we haven't necessarily worked on the albatross but um but yeah there are there's the wandering albatross that breeds there, um, raises a chick, when that chick fledges, they don't actually come back to shore to begin looking around and starting to breed until they're maybe four years old. Um, So those whole first four years of its life is spent wandering around at sea.
0: Yeah, just growing up and going on adventures and eating. (laughs) Yeah, that's another thing that's like, I always found fascinating. It's like how long lived some birds can be like albatross is a good example of that. Um, yeah, they, they, what's that, the one wisdom, whatever species the albatross that is, she's like almost 70 years old yeah, <laughs> that they know of, at least. still
1: raising chicks. Uh-huh. Yeah.
0: It's yeah. amazing.
1: That's, that's, a, that's on the extreme end. I mean, most, sure. most seabirds are, are much, uh, have much right. shorter lifespans than that. But yeah, right. you yeah, know, that many of them can live quite, quite long, at least compared to a lot of the smaller land birds that we're used to that maybe have a lifespan of four or five years, something mm-hmm. like that.
0: Right. Yeah. Your average songbird probably only lives like three or four years. Yeah. Yeah. I just find birds are cool. I have a question about your background. Like, how did you get into this research? And I ask everybody this question because everybody's path is different. And like some of it's by accident. Some of it's like, oh, I had an interest as a kid. So I'm always just curious to hear. So I'm curious what your story is.
1: I, I got interested in science in general uh, as a kid. and I was—I yeah, was—I had sort of general eclectic interests in science. In science, um, I started to get more interested in biology in high school, and um, it was really um, not until I went to college uh, that I that I started to focus in on, on specialties. Um, uh, sort of in high school, I had started to get exposed to aquatic ecology, aquatic science, um, mostly freshwater biology. And uh, I worked with an advisor at where I did my undergraduate at a liberal arts school in Wisconsin called Lawrence University, um, and got involved with with freshwater ecology work there. So that was kind of how I got into ecology. And then around the same time, I developed an interest in birding in birds. And at first, I was just sort of a hobby. But um, when I started looking around to do a master's degree, I thought, well, maybe studying seabirds would be an interesting thing to do. I like birds. I like marine science. And so that's that's what I did. I, I wound up uh, getting into a lab at the University of Washington to do my master's degree and worked on some seabirds on the, the Washington coast. And I really fell in love with not only working with seabirds themselves, but with the research community. The seabird research community is a really welcoming and uh, awesome group of scientists um, uh, sort of across the board and, and got really excited about doing a lot more with the seabird biology sort of uh, world. Then I took a couple of years off after my master's. I worked for an off-campus program, uh, this Woods Hole Sea Semester program, and spent quite a bit of time at sea learning more about the ocean, certainly, but also teaching. I'm I'm very passionate about teaching. And then decided to go back and do my PhD and and basically looked around for places where I could work on seabirds um, without really a, a, a strong you know, the Antarctic always fascinated me as much as sort of other places with really cool wildlife. Um, I never really had a a thought that I might work in the Antarctic, um, but the opportunity came along. And and so I joined the lab mostly so I could work with seabirds and getting to go to the Antarctic was an added bonus.
0: Yeah, that's cool. Everybody, as far as Antarctica is concerned, either like got there on accident or had a very specific goal to work in Antarctica Uh, so I find that interesting as well like some people just like oh I'm going to do this and then ended up accidentally going to Antarctica basically yeah
1: Uh, and a lot of people I'll say a, a lot of the people that I've met Antarctica has a has a power that it wields I think a lot of people wind up going to Antarctica for one reason or another and deciding that they have to go back, they have to keep studying Antarctica because it, it just takes hold of them uh, sort of in a, in a really sort of magical way. Um, and many, many people find that. And a lot of people who visit there as tourists, actually um, wind up going back for a second time later in life uh, uh, because they just fell in love with it so much.
0: I think that's a really good way to describe that theme that I keep hearing from people as well. Like even the people who ended up going like, you know, by luck, like oh that was amazing uh, i must continue this yep. <laughs> that's a good way to describe it yeah man everything you're doing is amazing
1: i've been pretty lucky <laughs> yeah it's a it's a, it was a really cool period working down there as my for my phd and i, I hope to continue to work in the antarctic i'd like to keep this ebird thing going and mm-hmm. um make something of that and hopefully that'll allow me to continue to go down and, and work it's a the group that we work with is very collaborative mm-hmm. um, and we have people Many of whom have, have worked you know, with Ron and Oceanides and, and now Heather's lab and, and continue to be involved in some way. I'm sure many of us will go on and do other things, um, but a lot of us, I think, will still have a, a little bit of a connection to the Antarctic. So we'll see what happens. But, uh, but yeah, I hope I hope I can get back there at some point in the, in the future. If there's any questions that you have, any follow-up questions, just be sure to let me know. And... I
0: did think of one more. What is What are you doing now? I know you said you're in Canada, but...
1: Yep. Yeah. So I um, I'm here. My my partner Emily is uh, doing a PhD at the University of Manitoba. Oh. Uh, so I'm here with her, and um, I'm uh, very 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 lucky. I managed to get a postdoc here, nice. um, which, uh, given everything that's going on in the world, puts me in a very lucky position. Um, uh, but it's actually a postdoc looking at the impacts that the COVID shutdowns have had on on wildlife. Um, which yeah, uh, not too much we can say about that yet because right. Mostly because we're, the stuff that we're doing is, uh, we think might be fairly high profile. And so we, we wanna make sure we get that out to the journals. Um,
0: yeah, first. absolutely, yeah. No, so, totally um,
1: but hopefully I'll be able to talk about that soon.
0: Yeah, well, that sounds awesome. Yeah, I realized I hadn't asked what you were currently doing and that, that's cool. All right, well, thank you. This is yeah. awesome.
1: Awesome, yeah.
0: Hey, y'all, it's Rachel here. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Um, I just wanted to have a quick reminder that if you or a friend or someone you think would be a good guest, if you have any people like that, let me know or send them my way in some way. Um, And how you can do that is you can find me on Twitter at Flying Cypress. You can find the podcast on Facebook at Storytellers of STEM. That's STEM with two M's. We also have a shiny new Twitter account for the podcast so you can find the podcast on Twitter at Storytellers42. Yes, I'm a nerd. You can also email me storytellersofstem at gmail.com or you can find me and everything else on my website, rachelvelani.com. So you have loads of ways to get in touch with me. I want to hear from you. Go like the Facebook page, Follow me on Twitter. Follow all the storytellers on Twitter since they're mostly all there. And just, you know, have a good day and thank you for listening.